0: Our reading for today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verse 1 to 10, and it's on page 1048. I will read. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp? Sweep the floor, the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Please keep your Bibles open.
1: Well, it's a helpful thing to come into a part of the Bible with uh, an interesting question to start with. Here's my one to begin tonight. In what way would you say that someone on God's side feels differently to someone who isn't on God's side? In what way would there be a difference in the way that they feel? It's always a bit of a cheeky question. And I'm going to come up with a provocative answer. Difference? You can see in chapter 15 verse 1 there's joy in one hand and in verse 2 you'll see there is muttering on the other. Tax collector sinners, happy to be with Jesus and the Pharisees teach the law muttering and grumbling. Now Joy isn't a surprising thing to read about the God of the Bible. When we read last week, if you were here, how God is responsible for a great banquet. And in this chapter, that was in chapter 14, in this chapter, chapter 15, you will see constant rejoicing. He brought them home rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing all the way through. Joy goes with another big emotion that God has, which is love. You remember if you were here two weeks ago or three weeks ago that we did Luke chapter 13 where Jesus wanted to gather people to safety? Well, chapter 15 is the joy of just that very thing going on and taking place? So chapter 15 is really all about God's joy, And uh, it's uh, experienced, in this case, by two groups of people, tax collectors and sinners, chapter 15, verse 1. And uh, the sinners were Jews, but generally bad Jews. In other words, they said they believed in God, but they broke God's rules. So the practicing Jews, if you like, felt a bit superior to them, These sinners were also Jews and they were also part of their society. If you like, a bit like the white Brits of today who would call themselves Church of England on their hospital form and they don't go to church, they live with their partners. When their children are born, they go to the vicar wanting them to be baptised because they were done and want their children done as well because they're still considering themselves... to part of the club. But tax collectors, well, they were the ones who society closed ranks on. They were the nasties that were subcontracted to collect Roman taxes from the Jewish people. And remember, these are days before there were any uh, regulatory bodies, so they could ask as much as they want, knowing that you still had to pay because they had the whole Roman government <coughs> behind them. So you wouldn't say no. Therefore, they were hated on two counts: first, because they were helping the enemy, but second, because they were selfish and looking after themselves. Today, who might they be? Well, one suggestion might be that they're the more famous paedophiles like Jimmy Savile who because of their television personality and status had an unassailable position, they could do what they wanted and they exploited people for their own benefit in just the same way. Now, it may be that when you begin to think in characters like that, you begin to see that actually yeah, what's happening here is not musty-smelling 2,000 years ago, but if you like, you capture some of the shock of what it must have been like for Jesus to spend time with these people and why it was uh, so uh, offensive to the God Squad who were very unhappy in verse 2. And you've got to keep that tension between the good guys and the bad guys, as you understand these three little stories that you get in chapter 15, as God explains what it's like between God and people. We're only going to look at two of those three stories tonight. We'll look at the third one next week. So if you want to read the Bible before you come, read Luke chapter 15, verses 10 to the end, so you can get ahead. Before you arrive. But tonight we're going to look at two things about God. And first, we're going to look at the searching God. Secondly, we're going to look at the rejoicing God. And we're going to see what we see from those two stories. First, the searching God. And actually, the searching God you get in, like you get with the rejoicing God, in all three stories. But in the first story, you see how this searching God goes after one lost sheep. Yes, he's got 99 others, and most farmers won't worry if they lose one, they write off the casualty. But here, the shepherd acts as if his lost sheep is the only sheep that he has. So he'll go wherever it takes to find it and bring it home. In the second search story, there's a lot of searching going on there. There's sweeping, there's looking under things, the house is turned upside down, and again the search will not end until that coin is found. In the third story, it's slightly different because the sun goes off in the far country. This time the dad does not go into the far country after sun, but when we get there next week, you'll see he's still searching the horizon. And when he sees the son far away off, we'll see what he'll do. Which introduces us to the condition of man, which is lost. That's why God has to go searching, because the people that he's talking about in these stories are lost. Now it's very interesting because today we use non-value judgement language all the time and so when people don't go to church we don't say that they're lost, we say that they are unchurched or we use little descriptions like that but when the Bible speaks, it speaks descriptively about someone who is lost. It's a really helpful way to describe something that is not where it should be which is lost. It's a word that is humbling because it implies a certain amount of stupidity to go and get lost in the first place. In the sheep's case, there's clearly no awareness of danger. But it is also a word with compassion, isn't it? It creates a desire to help when you hear of someone who's lost rather than a desire to hurt them. So when someone's lost at sea, you don't stand on the cliff and you shout, Idiot! <laughs> no, you call the coast guard, and every time the wave goes over their heads, you worry until finally the helicopter comes and they're safe. If someone's lost, it, your heart goes out to them, doesn't it, a bit? And I wonder if one of the ways in which we need as Christians to see others who get it wrong is not just to see that they are the smelly nasties of this world, but to understand that actually they are lost. Thinking those terms might bring us some compassion. It certainly ought to bring us humility because, well, that's what a Christian is, just someone who is found. Christians aren't those who think of themselves as smart. Somehow we got hold of God, other idiots didn't. No, we're not like that. We're just people who are found. That's all a Christian is. And you don't have to be too smart for that to happen. And if there is a God who is non-stop on the search guess what his church ought to be like? we ought to be a searching church, shouldn't we? That's why if you join our church, you will be part of a team that searches every house on this estate for lost sheep. And we're not doing it because we want to be a large church. We will do it just for one person because there is a search God behind his searching church. That's point number one. Point number two is there is a joyful God. In all three st- stories, I don't know if you noticed, but the happiest person in each of the three stories is God himself. But in the second story, this is why we're hoping on the one with the lost coin, it says... That is rejoicing in the presence of angels. Now, that tells you this is big time, this is universal, this is heaven sized joy. That's how big the joy is. And what's interesting about the second story is that the joy is entirely with the searcher ah, the coin that's lost makes no difference to it, whether it is found. It's not going to come to any harm. But the search is on simply for the joy of the searcher, not the coin. That's interesting, isn't it? Because God's happiness and rejoicing is bound up in finding what is lost i would expect the joy to be all about restoring joy to us. And that's certainly true. The sheep is best with the shepherd, and the son is best when he's back at home. He'd be happier there. But with the coin story, the happiness is all in the God who searches and finds. And in a strange way, therefore, his joy is bound up the finding of people who are lost. It's fascinating because we'd expect God to be self-contained in his happiness and we would certainly rush to say that God doesn't depend on people for anything. And that is certainly true in these stories. The sheep does depend on the shepherd, doesn't he? All the way. And In the next story we look at next week, we'll see that the son gets absolutely everything from the father. The father doesn't get anything from the son. So it is important that we stress that the traffic is from God to us. And yet it is true, in one area, God's joy is increased when people are found. Not that joy is deficient in God until then, But it is increased as the lost people are found. Now, that is how it is with uh, genuine love, isn't it? If I took uh, Debbie flowers and just in a detached way said, there you are. Well, she might have some joy in the flowers. But that would be it. But if Debbie could see that in me giving her flowers my joy was entirely bound up in giving them to her because I love her so much that I, it's such a joy for me to give her these flowers, this gift. And then she would be absolutely overwhelmed. Not with the flowers <coughs> but with my joy in caring for her that much and giving to her. Which is actually the reason why I don't give her flowers. <laughs> uh, because I, 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 you know, I, I, I would hate for her to be overwhelmed in that sort of way. Um, uh, I've got to be careful with that. Uh, but, but nonetheless, if I did give her flowers with joy, it would make a difference than from just giving her the uh, flowers themselves. That's how it works at Christmas, isn't it? Parents give... Um, uh, Christmas presents. In fact, if you go to the big shops, they're doing all their Christmas shopping even now uh, while it's still far away. Uh, why? So when Christmas Day comes, parents are just as excited as the children. Uh, children are, 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 are happy to receive the present, but the parents are waiting for it to come so they can actually give them because their joy is caught up in the happiness of their children. Not that they need the children to give them anything, but their joy is in the giving. That's how it is with God. Now, doesn't that give you a heartwarming view of how God views someone who is lost? See, that person who's lost might think that they've made a right royal mess of their lives. And they might be able to think of people that they have hurt. And they might think that they will never be able to bring joy to anybody else ever again. But can you see, it's not the end. God's own happiness is bound up in you and look, even if you've got it right, whatever you've done to bring happiness to other people in the past is nothing compared to the happiness you might yet bring to the whole of heaven if you are found. And that is real joy. It's not just Bible words describing joy in a theoretical sort of way. It's not as if when a person becomes a Christian, there's Paul nudging Peter and saying, oh, mate, wake up. There's another sinner there that's repentant. You better get your trumpet out. And Peter goes, oh, yippee doo and go, in a bored kind of way. Now, this is the one joy, that is real joy, that is set to fill the whole universe before the glory of Jesus comes back. And uh, that joy is eclipsed by the presence of all those he has saved. Now, that is real joy. That is the joy that drives God to bring people home. And if that is the case, we need to think about the implications of that for us. What's to take home for us tonight? Well, if you're new to church, I know it's really humbling. But isn't it helpful to agree with God's description of what your life without him is like? You are lost. Would you be willing? So
0: proud.
1: <laughs> he looks like he wants to be lost, doesn't he? But can you see that actually that is what your life has been like? That in the end, there is lostness written everywhere would you be willing to admit that you are not where you should be? That is what the definition of lostness is. And then, would you be willing to be found? One of the people who followed Jesus, who heard him say this parable, a man called Peter, Rater wrote in a letter what it was like to become a Christian. Shall I read to you his lovely words? He said... For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. Friends, why not call out for God to find and rescue you tonight? That is all a lost person has to do when you have a God whose joy is bound up in finding and bringing people home. What happens if you're used to church? Have you caught yourself being critical rather than compassionate when other people have got it wrong? Is it easy to read about Rolf Harris and to go tut? tat Isn't it the natural thing to do when non-Christians live in a very destructive kind of life where Jesus' uh, response is summed up in verse 2 isn't it Uh, the Pharisees the teachers of the law muttered this man welcomes sinners and eats with them let me tell you I've been a minister for 31 years and one of my biggest failures is I've never picked up a reputation like that but Jesus did they called him the friend of sinners. And wouldn't it be great to have that reputation ourselves? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we ask God to give us a heart of <coughs> compassion so we see people primarily as lost so that our hearts might go out to the person like the one in the sea drowning, wanting them to be found, wanting them to be helped. Thirdly, for believers wanting to become like the Lord Jesus, wouldn't it be great to have our church characterised by an experience and by expectations of joy? Because we have a God who is so committed to seeking and saving the lost, why his own joy is bound up in him doing that. I think joy can ebb from Christians' company count it, uh, can't it? We can think that, uh, well, we don't know many non-Christians for a start and then, of course, that means that we don't experience the great joy of seeking and saving them. So our joy can be on a low count because of that. Or it could be that somehow our joy hasn't quite caught up on the fact that if you want universe filling joy, heaven-filling joy, then the joy that we need to be focusing on is the joy of seeking and saving the lost. Maybe we've got our joy in the wrong place. And so the uh, battery is on empty because of that. Or it may be that as a Christian, we might just think that God doesn't do this. That he doesn't really want to save well, or the people are just too lost. And we need to catch up with this idea that is in this uh, part of the Bible, this truth, that God finds his joy in seeking saving lost. Do you think, therefore, that that's not going to happen? Of course, if there's a joy like that, then we can expect to be joyful as we see him do his work. So I think it's right, isn't it, that we should pray, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation, that my joy might be caught up in the things that make God joyful. Let's pray that God will help us to do that and then we'll take some questions or hear some comments. Heavenly Father, we praise you that your joy is bound up in seeking and saving the lost. Holy Spirit, increase our joy as we take in tonight's understanding of God's searching joy. And give us a joy in being like him. We pray for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.